It's about the tools we use. It's about the stories we tell. It's about how we change. It's evolution, baby. Welcome back to Do the Evolution, a podcast about all things film, technology, and transformation. Today, I'm excited to share a talk I recorded with Dr. Keith Witt, a psychologist, author, speaker, and all-around amazing teacher. Dr. Witt is one of the sharpest minds I've ever met and a total badass heart warrior. We cover a huge range of topics in this action-packed episode. I hope you enjoy. So today my guest is Dr. Keith Witt, a uh, longtime associate and friend and just fascinating man who every time I have a conversation with him, I feel like I've left uh, having learned more than I knew going into it. So excited to have you here today, Keith. Well, I'm delighted to be with you. And uh, yeah, you have just um, touched me in a lot of ways throughout our relationship in terms of your just deep knowledge of the world of transformation and consciousness and this kind of integral scene we both love so dearly, which to me, a big part of which is just this kind of evolutionary view. And so one of the things I just was super excited about talking to you with is like, even just that word evolution, what does it mean to you? How has it played out in your life? And like, where are you seeing it play out in the world that really kind of lights you up? So let's just dive right in. Let's dive right in. You know, uh, one thing about evolution that I think people don't realize is that evolution is intensely relational. Oh, awesome. That there was there was one thing once, that was, and then there was the Big Bang, and it turned into um, an infinity of things, and they've been relating with each other ever since. And those relationships are evolution. Um, and it's from, from cosmic strings relating to little cosmic strings, including and transcending in whole archies, all the way up the scale, um, it's relational. And the summit of evolution in the known universe is the intersubjectivity between human beings. Mm. One human brain, human being in relationship with another. Your and my dialogue at this moment is, reflects the highest level of evolution in the known universe. And I think it's important to recognize it's all relationships all the time. <laughs> I love that. I've already got an, a huge smile on my face. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's been something that's been playing out increasingly in my life is the, the power of relationships and the relational field. So I'm so happy that you're starting there. Yeah. The, you know, most people, um, I came to evolution as a little kid because my dad was a biology teacher. And so my understanding of evolution proceeded in waves um, up through, of course, and, uh, my integral awakening and then beyond that. Um, but what really lit me up around evolution was learning about chaos theory from uh, Ilya Prigogine. Mm. Ilya Prigogine was a chemist. And he came up with the discovery in the mid part of the last century that complex systems naturally self-organize to greater complexity. Now, what a complex system is, it's, it's, a, it's a, 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 a set of differentiated parts that are connected in a whole and energized from the outside. 
and arranged mm. hierarchically and and capable of chaotic behavior. And that that group doesn't get lost in chaos like a like a puff of smoke in the wind, and it doesn't get lost in rigidity like a diamond gets lost in rigidity for billions of years. Um, it's capable of chaotic behavior, and it naturally self-organizes to greater complexity. And greater complexity in complex systems looks like greater com- uh, simplicity, but hmm. but actually it's not. It's more complex and it's more energy efficient. So. If you apply that to what we know about evolution, that is the evolutionary impulse. That the complex systems, a, a human brain is a complex system. Yeah. Our relationship with each other is a complex system. And life on ecosystems are complex systems, and so on and so on and so on. Um, and since the beginning of the, the Big Bang, when the natural laws came into existence, one natural law, of course, was gravity electromagnetism, speed of light, all those things came into existence in this universe, as did complexity theory. Complexity theory came into existence also. Um, And it proceeded up through the universe, waking up to itself, essentially, um, through levels and levels and levels until we got to life. Um, I, I think about often like the universe dream came into existence at the Big Bang, and the universe has been waking up to itself ever since, that most animals are still living in the dream. And here we are, we woke out of the dream <laughs> and can, can, can observe the dream from the outside and project the dream forward in time. And in evolution, uh, the, the way that complexity shows up in consciousness is the more evolved a human being becomes, it's, you can tell the extra level of complexity because they have deeper consciousness and more compassion. Hmm. So the directionality of evolution is towards deeper consciousness and more compassion. And since we are the, the advancing edge of evolution in the universe, then that's been the direction of ev- evolution all along. It's always been going towards wakening, hmm. towards deeper consciousness, towards more compassion. Um, one of the reasons that we can st- we can see this is that um, – We've looked at how the drives and the instincts manifest um, through human beings throughout the evolutionary cycle. And and historically, there have been three kinds of evolution. There's been natural selection, which is survival of the fittest. You you, you take best care of yourself. There's sexual selection, which is survival of the sexiest. (laughs) You can can get the most mates, pass on the most genes. Um, um, And then there's kin selection. We tend to want to protect our bloodlines, our our blood kinship. Um, And that makes sense for most of the evolution that we've discovered. But a guy named Robert Kloniger wrote a book called um, Feeling Good, which was the simplest thing about that book, the title, everything else was totally (laughs) complex. And, And in his research, he determined that there were at least seven temperamental qualities that all human beings are born with. And most of them make sense in terms of natural selection, sexual selection, and kin selection. For instance, dependency, um, harm avoidance, novelty seeking, cooperation, um, reward dependence, persistence. Um, But one of them is self-transcendence. Self-transcendence doesn't particularly serve sexual selection. Kin selection or natural selection, self-transcendence is the evolutionary impulse in all of us. And every one of us has it. 
Every human being, no matter how happy they are, they want to be a little happier. No matter how awake they are, they want to be a little bit more awake. No matter what kind of art they've created, they want to create some more art. That self-transcendence is the evolutionary impulse. It's us consciously serving what up to this point, three, 13 and three quarters billion years, the universe has been unconsciously, non-consciously, or even without consciousness, you know, you know, like matter, just prehension serving. Well, now we're serving it consciously, ontologically in our own individual lives and phylogenetically in terms of the human race. Um, and that's a big deal. That is, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it even, you know, one thing that just struck me immediately when you were talking about the evolutionary impulse and the, uh, um, what did you say? Like more consciousness and deeper compassion? More, more compassion, and deeper consciousness. Yeah. More compassion and deeper consciousness. I was like, yeah, those are <laughs> two things that it seemed definitely necessary in relationship to me. The more <laughs> I get to uh, know someone and spend time with someone, those are the it seems to me the two qualities that are being called out of the space we're creating together. Yeah. And inner subjectivity um, cycles in different directions, depending upon what aspect of our unconscious or our shadow is, is informing us the most, because even though we're awake, we're still driven by the universe dream. We're still driven by, by the instincts and by all our training and so on. And that comes up from our non-conscious, conscious, uh, what I call shadow, continuously yeah. in constructive and destructive forms. And in relationship, it'll come up constructively and we'll be pro-social and we'll be doing a dialectic and we'll be working for shared truth and love. Or it'll come up destructively, where we'll compete, or we'll um, we'll get defensive, or we'll feel unsafe. And part of the human gift is the capacity to be aware of these forces and to make choices about them. And one of the reasons everybody in change work and everybody in contemplative work is so big on meditation and, and, and contemplation and mindfulness mm -hmm. is that the more mindful we are, the more choices we have, the more we can, we can observe ourselves between impulse and act and make choices. And ideally, we choose deeper, deeper consciousness and more compassion. Um, ideally, in our inner subjectivity, we choose more love with each other. We choose the dialectic rather than, than the debate. Um, yes. We choose social engagement rather than uh, social striving. Yeah, that, I, I love that. Um, it reminds me of this kind of idea that's been pinging around my head lately, particularly around this idea of even what I call this podcast, like do the evolution in what you're talking about of this process where we're unique. I think in the sense you could make the argument that, yeah, you know, we are part of um, evolution and this evolutionary impulse somewhat becoming aware of itself. Mm -hmm. And just the way you just even described the mindfulness, it strikes me like at the very micro level that, that very act of like catching a process while it's like kind of automatically firing and noticing it, even just that very process is actually making that even more conscious. Yeah. It's actually evolving in the moment of, oh, what was once automatic, I just have a little perspective on and I, I saw it happen now and then theoretically hopefully have more choice around it. Yeah, that's a superpower. <laughs> totally. We, we have so many superpowers. I think I think that's one of the reasons everybody likes superhero movies because intuitively they go, yeah, I knew it all along. 
I, I know that we all have superpowers, um, and they like see the superpowers, um, you know, amplified and, and mythologized on the screen. But basically, every human being has all these superpowers, and that one is one of the biggest ones. Absolutely, and yeah, it, it, this is great because, as you know, I'm super into media and Hollywood and storytelling, and this is something I've actually thought about a lot, even just in terms of. Um, superheroes and the way they're showing up on screens now is like the one thing I've noticed that seems to make for the most compelling superhero stories is it, it's almost inevitable the way these stories are crafted. You know, a, a hero is given some kind of power, which gives him like some external, really amazing abilities. Mm-hmm. And then the threat is usually some dark form of that comes up to match them in yeah. which a a villain has the equal kind of superpower, let's say, Thus actually nullifying their superpower in the exteriors. And it becomes about like what what's different on the interiors for this character that makes them different from the villain, that makes them able to overcome them in the end, which tends to be some kind of interior will or good faith or willingness to just try something new or catch themselves in the moment. Um, and so, yeah, it's so cool that you're already going there. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, and, and if you look at the super, the super popular superheroes like um logan and iron man yeah they have psychological depth absolutely Um, there's a reason that it's not just why you know it's not just because you know wolverine has the claws and everything i mean there's other superheroes that have all kinds of stuff like that but why why him because there's depth he's struggling with his inner demons continually chooses love yes he chooses the right you know what um and that's uh, what makes him the hero. Totally. That's that's what makes ultimately ultimately that 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 moral compass of his, that commitment to his values, that that deep um, uh, uh, purpose of putting himself uh, behind his belief in the highest good, is what makes us love him and want to see him again and again and again. And also because he, he's always struggling with his own inner violence, making him want to be punitive with his violence, uh, get revenge with his violence rather than to do right mm-hmm. and you know we see that struggle we identify with that struggle um we see him uh, transcend self-transcend around that and it makes us feel good because intuitively we're self-transcending with him you know we're choosing impact over over p- punishment we're choosing to do right rather than to serve more base needs for violence or revenge oh, so beautiful yeah i, f- I feel like you just kind of nailed uh, so many of the mainstream movies, like that's just it. It's the, the superhero is the one that continually chooses love yeah. um, in all these situations where all these super bad people come up with sometimes even greater powers than them. The one thing the hero can do that the villain cannot is choose love in the moment. And right. I, in, in some regards, I imagine, you know, or at least in my life, that's kind of true. What happens when I'm doing mindfulness and trying to enact that in my own life, even if it's just love for myself or self-compassion in the moment for, oh, here's that thing I'm doing again. And that that self-love is a line, I think, that mm. closely parallels the moral line. And it's an include and transcend line uh, that we can affect. You know, in, in utero, we are love because we're one with everything. But then when we're born, we we experience ourselves as separate and we are loved. 
But then later on, when we're when we're toddlers, we are loved conditionally, and then when we can observe ourselves. We love ourselves conditionally. Um, now, as we go through those stages, they include and transcend each other. Um, we don't get back to I am love through losing a sense of self. We get back mm-hmm. to I am love by continuing to evolve throughout our lifetime until we functionally identify with everything that is. And here we are back to unity with everything. We're back to I am love. And every time we feel shitty about ourselves, because we're in relationship with ourselves all the time, as well as with other people, there's a separation happening inside us. And most of the trauma work these days, if you look at it you know, from you know, EMDR or, or neurofeedback or reconsolidation or all that kind of trauma work, uh, internal family systems, all those systems involve finding those ruptures, those barriers between different parts of ourselves or conflicts and healing them. And the way, how do we heal them? We heal them just like you heal, just, like complex systems. Mm-hmm. You connect them. Because remember, in a differentiated, in a system, you have differentiated parts that are connected. Um, how do we stay stuck in ourselves, in our relationships? We get disconnected and our defenses keep us disconnected, disconnected from parts of ourselves, disconnected from each other. Yeah. And so healing work involves finding those disconnections, those barriers, and, and creating portals, thresholds in them where we can step through and connect. And when that happens, our brains and our nervous systems naturally evolve. We don't have to force it. All we have to do is make the connections. And then complexity theory itself, the evolutionary impulse itself, will cause us to continue to evolve and accelerate our evolution. Wow. (laughs) I love that. Uh, yeah, I just got kind of shivers in my whole body listening to that in terms yeah, of... Yeah, me too. Whenever I talk about it, I get yeah, shivers. Yeah, it, it's just the what I love about the way you express that is the simplicity of it, um, in some sense, of just like finding ways to reconnect things. Yeah. And just by focusing on that, focusing on these areas of disconnection and trying to get them to reconnect, then there's just this kind of magic faith of the evolutionary impulse that kind of takes over. Yeah. And kind of we weaves its way through that space that suddenly opened. Yeah, in a, in, in an otherwise um, comfortable environment, more or less. You know, it, you know, in spiral dynamics, uh, uh, they say that um, worldview is evoked by life conditions. Yes, okay? and so most people on the planet. And, and I know that it, everything looks like it's going to hell right now, but there, percentage-wise, there's more people that are secure on the planet now than there have been percentage-wise before in the history of the world. There are more people that are free to be themselves than there have been percentage-wise in the history of the world. Um, um, there, there's, there's less obstruction to being able to be an, an autonomous being than there has been in the history of the world. Yeah. Under, under those circumstances, um, when we put together a more mature, say we put together our post-rational moral system, which is highly relativistic, okay, with our magic moral system. Okay, so my magic moral system says, says I step on a back, I break my mother's back. <laughs> okay? Okay, so I don't step on cracks. Step on a crack, break my... Okay, so... My post-rational moral system says, Keith, that's your magical moral system. And so I just connect them. Mm -hmm. I don't have to do anything other than keep them connected. And all of a sudden, it doesn't bother me to step on cracks anymore. 
Why? The more advanced systems colonize the less advanced systems in the, in the absence of external stress. Now, you know, say Trump won and, you know, and got the secret police to come and make everybody do what he wanted. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not going to happen. Thank you, Constitution. Benjamin yes. Franklin, my favorite guy. Um, but say that happened. Okay. Well, then I'd get all primitive. My moral system would go back to blue. Um, I, had an, I have a real enemy now. Um, and mm. all of the, all of a sudden, a lot of my on my lines of of development would have to regress to deal with these new life circumstances. Yeah. Um, and and so human beings, when they don't have that kind of stress, want to share with each other. They want to care for each other. They want to be fair. That's the evolutionary impulse coming up, wanting to cooperate to accelerate evolution. But if you take a human community and you stress it from the outside that they have to respond, there's not enough food, there's not enough security, there's domination or something. Everybody has to organize to deal with that. And and almost by definition, they have to regress. Mm. Uh, And if we can look back through all of human history and see this happening again and again and again in one form or another. um, Yeah, I'm just even thinking about like, currently what's happening today because i'm totally with you actually in terms of uh the kind of general optimism about the direction Mm -hmm. the world is going and and then there's like oh here's where we're actually at as you know uh, a country and who we just elected and where the culture's at but yeah it's it's even giving me a little pause and i guess breathing room considering like oh i wonder like in the current situation if I look at it through the lens of what's trying to be reconnected, like for us to move forward, it actually (laughs) gives me a totally different lens on like what's happening right now. Cause you know, and part of my mind is like, Oh, this is a total disaster. Evolution's totally going the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess at the same time, it's like, um, there's a a little bit of stress. There's definitely some stress happening to the system, but it does seem like something almost like a fever is about to break is, is, is kind of how I'm looking at it and hoping um, things are going where there is a certain pathology around our political system now. And honestly, in my view of Trump, like an older form of kind of pathological masculinity, which has traditionally kind of led our politics and our world that at this point, just seeing him, it just, it's just so obvious. It's not working anymore. I mean, it got him elected, (laughs) but it's, it's just like the perfect example of like, well, as a man, that's what I don't want to be like. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just, it's just interesting even thinking about, okay, so what's, well, as a metaphor, yeah, as, as a metaphor, you know, if anybody's ever had a herpes infection on their face, yeah, you know, or, or on their genitals for that matter, you know, when you have a herpes sore, your whole body is sick, but the sore is the visible manifestation of that illness. Ah, yes. Trump is the visible manifestation of the illness of our culture. And what Ken Wilber recently postulated in a monograph he did that I agree with, and this all the populism that's coming across the West right now is an evolutionary correction. Um, basically, um, the, the his premise is that when um, pluralism took over, you know, green took over in the, the 70s, the promise to everybody else is we're going to take care of you. Yeah. Well, the reactionary um, blue and orange elements, political elements in the United States, particularly, um, 
said, we're not going to let that happen. And we're successful. You know, the American system is arranged so that one group, a minority, can freeze the process. So an awful lot of people didn't get taken care of. And they got pissed off, and because they're they're not rational, you know, like yep. blue is not rational. Blue blue focuses on preconceived notions and on 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 formulas. Essentially, they were convinced that um, the reason that we're not being taken care of is because green's fucked up. Okay, and so they're attacking green. And one thing that 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 Ken pointed out is if you listen to everything that 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 Trump said in the, the campaign, and still. All of it is anti-green. Totally. <laughs> every, every single, every single pluralist, world-centric, um, environmentally friendly, um, equality of men and women for Christ's sake, you yeah. know, like gender stuff. All of it attacked, ridiculed by him, because there's a vast number of people that felt left behind, and so to his. To a certain extent, it's a challenge of Green to wake up a little bit more, to become a little bit more integral, and say, we need to take care of ourselves, and we need each other better, and we need to not be distracted or dissuaded or frozen from taking care of each other um, by the rigid political reactionary uh, processes that are happening in the West where the wealthy people have co-opted the system and have arranged it so that the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and so on. And, you know, Bernie Sanders really was, was uh, if anybody's a, vo- a spokesperson for that, it's Bernie. Totally. You know, you know Bernie, Bernie's somebody who saw that he, he's articulating the need for revolution. But in the modern age, we don't have revolution by getting guns and shooting the government. We have revolution by enough people realizing the, that uh, they need to choose someone who's going to do a little redistribution. redistribution and do a little bit more social democracy and when they choose enough people who want to do that then we begin to have situations like we have in california right now california is doing great yeah totally (laughs) people in california are being well taken care of Healthcare is expanding in california infrastructure is being built in california Uh, tax revenues are up in california you know why is that well there was enough people who made the decision to we're going to not just be good for business we're going to take care of everybody especially poor people yeah and we're going to we're going to try to expand the middle class and sure we have the, the highest taxes of any other state but you know what Awful lot of rich people are in California paying taxes. Totally. Um, yeah. And so, and so if we look at – now, not, not to say that blue cares about the facts or unhealthy orange cares about facts that much either. But enough people begin to see models like this as opposed to, say, Kansas that cut taxes dramatically yeah. and now the country's going – and now the state's going bankrupt and the schools are going bankrupt and everybody's going to hell. Okay, well, so that's – that's one strategy. Let's keep the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer and don't do anything for anybody. And here's another strategy that's working quite well. Um, you can see the same thing happening in the happiness surveys because cultures evolve just like individuals. Yeah. And social democracy is a more um, uh, highly evolved uh, form of government than the democracy we have, the more Republican democracy. And if you look at uh, wealth figures and happiness figures, happiness people on earth live in social democracies. The largest amount of middle classes on earth are in social democracies. The most stable economies are in social democracies. So evolution is, is naturally taking the human communities towards these forms. And in these forms, when you don't have to worry about food, shelter, education, or health care, what do human beings do? 
they self-transcend. Yeah. They create art. Totally. They create business from their hearts. Um, they focus on relationships. Um, they're less violence and more love and more intimacy. Um, those kinds of things. The kinds of things that we're seeing really all over the place. Uh, if you just if you just have your eyes open to look for them. Yeah, that uh, the, what gets me excited about that. Um, you know, this is a can of worms in its own right, but is the uh, continually growing. And I feel like actually starting to touch the mainstream in certain regards, discussion about a universal basic income. Ken talked about that in his monograph, and I completely agree with that. You know, Richard Nixon looked into that, for Christ's sake. Ha I did not know he looked into that. He did. He had Haldeman and Erlkman look into a guaranteed universal income. They didn't do it, but he looked into it. I had no idea it was even being, yeah, that had roots that long ago. That's crazy to me. I know, like he's such an evil guy, but he started the Environmental Protection Agency, you know, ended the Vietnam War. Uh, You know, there's nothing, boy, Trump is making an awful lot of other people look better. (laughs) That's true. I I didn't think that I'd ever think there was a bigger idiot in the White House than George Bush or somebody that potentially was more dangerous than George Bush. Yes. you know, ye of little, ye of little imagination. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we've all been taught a lesson there. Absolutely. Uh, but it does strike me, yeah, that the, um, I, I had never even thought about it, the universal basic income in terms of how it would impact evolution even in that sense of like, oh, what if the majority of our population or all of our population had basic security needs met and what kind of energy would that free up? theoretically for art for transcendence for shifting into this kind of um more open space of being able to focus on these things which is you know a white dude in america which is about as good off as you can get on the planet right now in some ways i would argue like i've had the uh, you know the ability to go to these kind of workshops and spend time working on myself and uh, have the energy to even start to look into like, what does it mean to kind of change myself and wake up in a way that, you know, people around me that I know certainly haven't. Yes. And- I, I, I agree with that. And I think, I think you're right. I, I think that if you look at the data, if you have, if you make everybody secure that way, you know, food, shelter, healthcare, education, um, some people will just not be value added. You know, mm-hmm. probably probably having to do with trauma, sometimes having to do with genetic predisposition. A certain amount of people will get lost to addiction. I mean, there's there's certain capacities that humans have for pathology that are going to happen in any group. Yeah. Now we know though that we can affect the incidence of those pathologies because that's what social science has has delivered. You know, if we can limit trauma, for instance, yeah. in childhood. The more we can limit certain kinds of traumas, there's about 10 different kinds that the less of those we have, the more less likely we are to be addicted, more likely we are to have a good job, more likely we are to live longer, more likely we less likely we are to smoke, less likely we are to be obese, more likely we are to have a good sex life. I mean, I could go on and on. <laughs> okay, so so if we have 
that kind of level of security, then we have parents that are less freaked out and stressed. We have more room for education in the culture about protecting children and caring for children and putting energy and money into uh, prenatal care, young families, mothers, and so on. Um, preemptive. For every dollar you spend with uh, for a kid under five, you save eight dollars in Jeez. the later on. Um, Jana Reno talked about this many, many years ago, and the Republicans, of course, eviscerated her for being a quote-unquote social worker. And my response to that is we should all be social workers, just like they, you know, they gave Obama shit for being a community organizer. Yeah. We should all be community organizers. Why? Because that's the bottom line, that we want us all to do well. And that's isn't our job here to have a good life and take care of each other. Oh, my God. And, to- totally. It, it, yeah, it blows my mind because – you know, as someone who's also totally fascinated by like technology and all the ways that it's so obvious technology is totally changing our culture right now. One of the things I've frequently thought about, particularly because of the time I spent in kind of our integral scene and just this awareness of how much we're learning about how people develop, you know, as simple as that. And like what you were just saying about um, how preventing certain major traumas in youth can just like accelerate everything so much in so many ways is like, that's one of the greatest technical revolutions we're in the middle of right now that like nobody talks about. Even I even saw my brother's like he's seven years older than me. Mm-hmm. He had her first kid um, maybe 10 years ago. And it was just I think this is kind of an example of like what happens when you have a certain amount of basic security needs met in a somewhat stable country is like. They read so many books on childhood development and how to be like good parents before they even had their first kid uh-huh. that, you know, there's no doubt that there's going to be traumas along the way in terms of how they raise their children and whatnot. But it just blows my mind when I even think about like how my parents raised me or how, you know, generations of parents did before that where they had no idea what was going on. They didn't. <laughs> just like no idea whatsoever. <laughs> And yeah, the idea that there is actual science-based standards, and the science standards in um, in uh, the fifties were basically based on on men's white men's opinions. Yeah, you know, like there's a lot. There was a whole thing about don't don't breastfeed or or don't breastfeed on demand. Um, not, it wasn't researched. It was just you know some guy came up with it and, and you know put it in his book, and then it became a standard. Now, since then, we've researched all that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, and so there's, and that that's the those books that um, your brother and sister in law are reading, um, and I, I I'm encouraged by that. That's certainly a big part of my mission is to help parents be better parents. Uh, now, part of the problem there, of course, is is that. Um, One thing I love about Integral is that Integral looks at everything all at once. Yep. Okay, so for instance, in the United States, there's a phenomenon of people in the United States with children aren't as happy as people without children in the United States. Now, that's not true in Europe. Really? Yeah, yeah. So what's the difference? Well, in Europe, they have childcare. They have parental leave. Um, they have more of a communitarian organi- or, or orientation. 
They're not a child-centered culture. They don't have child-centered cultures nearly as much in Europe. They have basically adult cultures, and the kids are expected to fit in, even though they're treated respectfully. Yeah. We have a child-centered culture in the United States where we're spending a hell of a lot of time focusing on the kids' inner experience and their development and, and their competitive edge and whatnot at the cost of self-care and care of a relationship. Well, what research is telling us is that that doesn't produce well-parented children. To the contrary, um, it stresses the relationship. Kids that have conflicted parents don't do as well. Kids that have parents who are healthy, happy with each other do a lot better. Okay? And so this is where there's, there's a cultural standard that has evolved that is going against what works best for human beings. Um, and then when that happens, what you do is you have pathology and you have distress and you have social tumult until there's a shift. You know, very much like the anti-sex religions like Christianity mm -hmm. you know, did with sexuality over a thousand years. Um, uh, and you can see there was a lot more suffering that they caused than the more pro-sexual uh, um, religions in the East. Um, there's certain kinds of pathologies that were just much more common. Um, uh, and so, you know, we got kind of, it's, it's all working, it's all happening at the same time. And evolution, evolution is very wasteful. Uh -huh. um, it, it's, it's important to recognize that, that there's an awful lot of waste in evolution. There's an awful lot of suffering. The first great die-off that happened in this planet was when the seas were teeming with, with single-celled life, and some of them started developing uh, photosynthesis. Well, wow, that was great at survival advantage for those bacteria who could, who could eat carbon dioxide, but the yeah. waste product of oxygen basically poisoned all the life on the planet with oxygen. 98% of everything that was alive died. <laughs> And then, photo, and then the, the, the new creatures had to come up tolerant, develop tolerant yeah. of oxygen, and so on. Well, same way with sexual dimorphism. Now, interestingly, that's changed. Um, evolution is a lot less wasteful potentially now because in the last 10,000 years, people started doing selective breeding, which dramatically accelerated evolution. When human beings started living in cities, physical evolution accelerated by a factor of 100, 10,000%. No way. The, the last major um, genetic shift, um, up-leveling of the human brain, happened only 8,000 years ago. There was a genetic variant that gave more con uh, convolutions in the cerebral cortex. It gave more area there. And it was such a great um, advantage. Almost everybody has that um, genetic characteristic today. Um, blue eyes only showed up eight to 10,000 years ago. And now there's all these people with blue eyes, right? Yeah. Okay. So human beings started accelerating physical evolution and then through selective breeding and now genetic recombining. Um, we don't have to have, you know, uh, millions of years where thousands of species die off to have a new form, we can have one happen in your basement with genetic, uh, with the the, um, the new, um, uh, uh, I forget what they called the, there's an acronym for the, the technology for genetic splicing. I, Is that CRISPR, that one? CRISPR, yeah. yeah. The new CRISPR, you can, go, you can go into your basement with CRISPR stuff and you can fast forward evolution in something a million years or two million <laughs> years. 
Now, now the the threats involved. Yeah. First of all, the abuse of power that people like Monsanto is, have done with this is is is, is staggering. Um, the fact that we that people can cook up superbugs as terrorist weapons is is frightening beyond belief. Absolutely. But also, what it's saying is like evolution now is going at warp speed because of us, and it's not like it was before. Okay. Now there's consciousness driving it. A lot less waste. An awful lot more of focus, a lot, an awful lot more of, of directionality. Yeah, that's. I love that. That now that consciousness is driving it, there's less waste. Which, like, that j- just the way that those two relate is kind of blowing my mind right now. That as consciousness, as evolution becomes more conscious of itself, and we're involved in that process, one of the side effects is less waste. Which is <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, <laughs> got me all. Uh, excited and I've just never thought of it that way before. And um, yeah, and it, again, it even strikes me that like in terms of, we have that amazing stuff kind of happening in terms of like the right-hand quadrants and the exteriors, but even again, just what we were saying about parenting and, you know, based on a lot I've learned from you and your work, even in our handling of like traumas and yes. oftentimes uh, multi-generational traumas, the yes. idea that like you and I are living in one of the first generations of people in which like we actually have pretty freaking good tools that it's not that we can completely erase our traumas, but we can like bring them to the surface and learn to work with them in a really workable way that I don't know if that was ever, you know, that's never been possible before within one generation to like significantly rework these, you know, even in my family, like some of the stuff that's been passed down in the masculine chain, like it's just crazy to, is uh, like I get deep in and feel back into some regard how far back it goes and to like <laughs> start to bring some consciousness to that and tools to that. It just, yeah, it, it thrills me where I'm like, of, of course things are accelerating. Like we have all this crazy stuff happening on the exteriors, but then just even on terms of the interiors in terms of how we're raising the next generation and then even learning to deal with our traumas within our current lives seems to be accelerating. This is one of the great gifts of Integral. You know, one thing that, that, that drew me to Integral, like most people, um, was that you never, get to, you never get to the end. There's always <laughs> levels ahead. Yeah. Okay? In every line, there's no end to any developmental line. There's just the next level. There's the next level. So my, my grandparents did the best they could to be good parents, yep. but they were limited socially and psychologically. My parents did a better job than their parents, um, but they were limited socially yep. and psychologically. I did the best job that I could, but I know a hell of a lot more now at 67 than I did at 37 when I had kids. But one thing that's different is that I was raised – and, you know, in my generation, one thing that's part of the boomer generation is lifelong development. Mm-hmm. And so instead of seeing my – I hate to say it, but there were points – there was a point where the, there were worlds that I was seeing that my parents could not see. Yes. Okay? There were spiritual worlds I was experiencing on a regular basis that were, you know, so much blah, blah to them. There was, you know, certain kinds of understandings that I was having that psychological understandings that um, didn't make any sense to them. And my parents were pretty advanced and had a lot of therapy uh, for more so than almost anybody else of their generation. 
So it, now we have the capacity to keep growing. What does that mean? That means the younger people can look to us as they, you know, millennials, there are wise people, be boomers, that mm -hmm. millennials can look to and say, you know, you really do have perspectives that I value. You have something to offer me. Um, and, and because, you know, as, as, as a, someone who's interested in lifelong development, I know that wisdom can come from anywhere, um, and I know it does, then when someone is deep in a particular line, I'm interested, and I learn yeah. from it, and I'm influenced by it, whether they're one year old or 30 years old or 40 years old or whether they have 18 degrees or whether they have no degrees. Um, why are we going for the substance, right? Um, and the more deeper you are, the more discerning you are about where the substance is and where the bullshit is. Yeah. And so in a way, what we're doing is we're reestablishing those old hunter-gatherer hunter hierarchies where there were wise old people. But now we're doing it – but they, you know, they were doing it in, in concrete operational, at best formal operational capacities. We're dealing with post-formal and post-post-formal cognitive capacities. We're dealing with levels five and six and even seven of morality. Um, in the second tier, everything changes. Um, and, and now there are more and more parents. There are more and more people in the second tier so that it's a thing. Yeah. It's not just a random event. It's not just one person out of, you know, whatever, 10 million. There's a lot of people. And so now this is creating some kind of shared understanding. You know, I like it that everybody in this, on, on, in, at least in the United States, understands the joke. Um, you know, the Zen monk goes up to the hot dog vendor and he says, what do you want? He says, I want one with everything. Yeah. And everybody gets it. Okay, well, nobody would have gotten that joke in 1950. Totally, okay. that's, yeah. Now everybody gets that joke. Everybody understands one with any, everything is a good thing. Everybody understands that that's a highly evolved consciousness. Okay, well, that didn't used to exist, and now it does. Now it's, it exists generally throughout Western culture and Eastern culture. How cool is that? And that's yeah. an evolutionary milestone, in my opinion. That totally is. I love that. And it's such a clear manifestation in some regards. It, yeah, when it shows up in like a joke, that really shows you how. Yeah. How much it's permeated. Gets. Yeah. How much it's permeated culture. And I just love what you were just saying about um, looking for wisdom where you see it uh, uh -huh. and, and that it can come, you know, from anywhere. Cause that's, that is definitely one of the things that lights me up about kind of the integral worldview and this idea of levels and lines and even the shifting um, idea of like student and teacher, as opposed to being like a monolithic relationship in terms of like, you are my teacher and I am your student the fluidity, it seems like um, part of what yeah. I imagine is second tier in this kind of more integral stage is, is it's like, well, in this capacity, in this domain, yes, student teacher, I, I like grant you authority to that. But actually over here in this other thing, it might be totally reversed where I'm the teacher and you're the student. And that like fluidity in terms of all relationships and looking for wisdom in different areas um, I, it, it, to me, it just seems like it's a total game changer in terms of even development in the way I'm seeing it kind of play out, particularly, I think, with people in my generation who, n no offense, but, you know, just seem to have been raised seeing these just countless examples of like um, the generations before us of the traditional student teacher thing breaking down because there was confusion around levels and lines. And it's like, well, if my teacher's spiritually aware, why... Are they, you know, abusing money or sex or power? And this kind of like just 
so many times we've seen it happen that there's a little, eh, I don't know if I want to ever have that kind of relationship with everyone. So it's more like, well, I'm going to do a little with you here, a little with you here, a little with you here, which I think has some dangers. But I think at the upside is that kind of more um, fluid, integral understanding of we're all teacher and student. I completely agree. And that, that does appear in the second tier. Flex flow relationships. Natural authority. Okay. You know, so I'm an authority as long as I'm not, I'm not bullshit and I'm an authority. Yeah. Now, and if you say, Keith, you're being bullshit, my first responsibility is to examine, okay, where am I being bullshit? <sighs> yeah. And, and that's my first responsibility. Now, I might not, I might not, I might not find it or yeah. I might find it. Um, but what that is, is it means that all, all the hierarchies in the second tier are liberation hierarchies. Okay. You know, if you, if it's not a liberation hierarchy, if it's a dominator hierarchy, you're not in the second tier, you know, um, except once in a great, 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 great while when you need to pull a dominator hierarchy together to contain some red person or blue person or orange person that's doing so much damage that they need that hierarchical container to protect the rest of us from them. Okay. Um, but again, that's flex flow. Uh, and you know, I, I, you know, back in the sixties, there's a reason they called it the counterculture. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I had, I had so much contempt for institutions. I, I dripped with content. I was a raggedy hippie contemptuous of, pretty much every institution I could see. And it took a long time for me to begin to see the legitimacy of institutions. And part of discovering that is that every single institution is going to have corruption in it. And that's a natural force in institutions. It's going to happen to every organization. It's going to happen to every social group. It's going to happen in every corporation, everything. And the best you can do with that is you have mechanisms in place, like you and I are talking about on a personal level. Yeah. You have mechanisms in place to observe the corruption and work against the corruption, to clean it up, and to keep the, the organization on some kind of a moral, um, uh, uh, a dire- a morally just uh, direction. And generally, you need those kinds of constraints often, at least with institutions, um, if they don't come from the outside, then the culture is going to suffer. You need external regulations. Good example of that is is in a hundred years, Canada has had zero banking crises. <laughs> in the last hundred years, the United States has had seventeen banking crises. Why? Even though you have wise people, you have banks like RoboBank that you know didn't go under during the big thing. Yeah. You know, if you have an institution like banking without external constraints, the corrupting influences are so powerful that it's going to create um, uh, banking crises. It's just going to happen. Um, and it, ha- it happened when Reagan deregulated savings and loan, and there was a savings and loan crisis and so on. All right, so part of an integral understanding is saying institutions really produce a lot of stuff, but they're dangerous if you don't have the containers around them. And, and if you want to look at the, what containers work, look at what science tells us. Um, and, you know, now if I have an awful lot of money and I have a billion mm-hmm. dollar organization and I'm a reasonable ethical person and I have regulatory constraints that cause, cost me money and is irritating me, I might give a million, I might want to give a million dollars to my congressman to buy them off so that they can remove those, those regulatory constraints on me. Okay. 
And, you know, there's certain people like Gates and, and Soros and those guys who say, no, I like the regulatory constraints yeah. because even though I personally don't need them, the institutions that are like my institutions need them. But more often than not, that doesn't happen, and that's another function of human consciousness. Human consciousness tends to, one, normalize what's happening, and two, you know, if you're not self-aware, um, power corrupts. Um, and if you allow yourself to accumulate power in the form of whatever, money, whatever, yeah. and you don't have some kind, of, some kind of mechanism in place to deal with your personal corruption – your personal corruption is going to take you over and you're going to come up with rationalizations to fuck everybody else up over to the advantage of wherever you have your power. Okay. Now that's, that's just a human tendency. People tend to not be able to see that in the first tier very well. In the second tier, you can see it a lot better. Um, it's one of the reasons that Plato said, I don't really care much for democracy. I'd like to have a philosopher king in charge. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and so what we're, what we're seeing in terms of evolution is evolution gives us these little peaks of, uh, you know, looks into superior forms, but then also shows us these forms that have been superior in the past. They all have their vulnerabilities. That's the dialectic of process. They all have their pathologies. And so it's, an, it's always going to be a work in process, you know, to deal with the destructive elements, um, both inside ourselves from our unconscious, constructive, destructive shadow, mm -hmm. the cultural, constructive, and destructive elements. And to have this, 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 this ongoing sense that evolution involves dangerous things happening and, and destructive things happening, constructive, and even though we're guiding the process, it's still uh, – it's, it's – it's, it's, it's a dangerous process. It's a messy process. And there's a lot of suffering that, that happens uh, along the way. Um, and, you know, I don't want to get over-idealistic about it because all that suffering stuff and all that pathology um, distresses me. Yeah. And certainly I've dedicated my professional life to um, um, healing um, the kinds of injuries that people experience um, individually and, and socially. Uh, yeah, that's actually a great... Um Great spot to pivot a little bit. I, I am curious just because I think you've, you told me at some point how many just thousands and thousands of hours you've done. Uh, yeah, 60,000 therapy sessions. 60,000 therapy sessions. Yeah, that just boggles my mind. Yeah. Um, and having been, you know, involved, like you said, in the counterculture up until the kind of the integral scene now, even this idea of like healing, um, I'm curious, like what in your mind comes to mind when you think about like what has changed or what are you seeing now or experiencing now that is different about even your field than when you first started? Oh, so much, Jason. It's, it's it, it, you know, <laughs> when I first started, um, there wasn't much science and mm. there was these different schools that used to give each other shit all the time. The behaviorists would shit on the psychoanalysts who were all contemptuous of the humanists, who were contempt contemptuous of the psychoanalysts and the behaviorists when they weren't being contemptuous of each other. And, you know, there were the individual people, therapists who were contemptuous of the systems people who were contemptuous of the individual. You know, I go on and on. You know, and it just was so much bullshit. It was <laughs> quite irritating. And so when I realized, I, you know, I was young when I decided to be a therapist. I was 15. Um, I realized that everybody had something to offer and I needed to learn them all. And so I just spent, 
I spent 15 years just learning systems and teaching systems and even generating systems and writing books about systems until finally, after I did my doctoral dissertation, I realized that that the bottom line is that all the systems have efficacy and that what people want need to do is they need to embody their natural healing style and be essentially integrally informed. Yeah. Um, and when I teach now, I teach people to identify and expand their natural healing style. If I'm working with therapists, I'm working on a nine-month uh, training course for master therapists um, where I'm only going to take people that have had 10,000 or more hours of uh, experience in change work, spiritual teaching, psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And the goal is to have them be stable at turquoise and, and violet in the therapy session. Oh, Cool. Because when you do therapy, particularly if you're working with couples, if you do psychotherapy effectively, you have to be stable at teal during the session. If you're working with couples and systems, you have to be stable at turquoise during the session. And if you do it enough, you need to be stable at violet. You need to have an ongoing, comfortable, familiar relationship with the other world that's there with you all the time. Um, And at that altitude, it really doesn't matter what your choice of system is. Um, what matters is that you're being authentically yourself and you're dedicating yourself to helping people grow horizontally and vertically. Um, and that's one of the things I loved about integral is not a, integral is not a theory. It's a meta theory. It's a scaffolding which organizes all the theories and, and f- shows how they all fit together. Yeah. And part of my mission in my writing and in my work has been to fill in that territory in psychology in the, the integral cosmology because that was obviously was something I was born to do. And when I hit integral, I went, okay. Uh, That's exactly how my first book on integral psychotherapy happened, Waking Up. I went to this uh, the first integral psychotherapy meeting in Denver, and we were all sitting around last night, and somebody said, the books are are yet to be written. I went, all right. (laughs) So I went home and spent the next 18 months writing a 450-page book on integrally informed psychotherapy. And it wasn't just my consciousness writing about it. I dreamt about the material every night and would wake up and write my dreams down, and that would make it into the work. Um, wow. it, was, it was a conscious and unconscious effort, and I haven't looked back on that. And you know, the, the therapists that I see that I admire now, you know, they'll, have, they'll still do that 20th century, you know, my theoretical perspective is better than yours bullshit. Yeah. But basically, not that much anymore. Mostly you see them honoring the other systems. And if you see them doing their work, they have certain things in common. There are universalities on, a, on effective individual conjoint family therapy. Um, people are all doing kind of the same thing. Mark Foreman and I just did a, a, a psychology now uh, talk about that with, cu- with integrally informed uh, couples therapy. Oh, awesome. It, they, you know, you can just take the people who say they disagree with each other. But if you had videotapes of them working with couples – they're all doing a lot of the same thing. They're all coming from a lot of the same places. And so that's where my profession has come. And also something Ken predicted 15 years ago, someone said, what do you think the future of psychology in 21st century? He said, well, there's going to be a lot of brain mind, um, brain machine interfaces that are going to happen. Well, you know, now these days, if somebody comes to me depressed or anxious, I send him to neurofeedback before I send him to a psychiatrist. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, why not balance your brain waves? And if that can if that can deal with your anxiety and your depression, why take those fucking drugs? Totally, they're horrible side effects. Really bad for your system. Um, there's a you know the pharmaceutical company is, has has completely corrupted the research process around those. I don't trust any of their data. Uh, it, I, 
you know, you know, anytime I want to, I, I want reassurance that I'm not an enlightened person. All I have to do is think about how fucking pissed off I am at the pharmaceutical companies, the bank, the banking industry, and the insurance companies. You know, there's a part of me that just wants to line them all up and just mow them all down, Jason. And you know, particularly the people at the top that are making million dollars, millions and millions and billions of dollars at the cost of human suffering at the bottom. Yeah. I find that utterly despicable and it just drives me crazy I, you know i start going into a rant about that when i'm talking to jeff jeff goes keith <laughs> no, I, i'm with you and i actually i actually think that's an evolved part of you i would make the argument for it <laughs> that's you know calling for a deeper level of care and seeing this pathology in the culture that is you know isn't responding to nice words and so right. you know I, I can feel the impulse of like what's it going to take to like shift or burn down that part of the system that's clearly dysfunctional and is totally harming causing great harm I, it's super personal for me right now even um chris cornell who is the lead singer from soundgarden oh yeah major singer of my generation just committed suicide a couple of days ago and yeah. the, what's trickling out now is yeah he was on some kind of anti-anxiety medication and he yeah. perhaps overdosed and so, you know, there's a lot of conflicting information, but the, he was clearly medicated and it, it definitely contributed to like what was going on in his current situation. And it's just like, it seems like time after time after time, particularly in the celebrity culture and, you know, these great artists and musicians, there's always some kind of medication involved. Oh, yeah. Oxycontin, the, the Philadelphia Pharma, I think, what, what were they called? It wasn't Princeton Pharma. Anyway, the people who made Oxycontin, they doctored up some studies to say that OxyContin was a better drug. Then they doctored up some studies that say that opiates are good for pain management. There's not one credible study ever done that shows that opiates are good for pain management. Opiates are only good for helping people through acute pain crises. If you wow. want to do pain management, you have to do other things to have it work. In fact, a lot of people with chronic pain who are on vast amounts of opiates, if you take them off the opiates a week later, their pain goes away. Holy shit. Because the opiates maintain um, creating hypersensitivities in their nervous systems on the level of the brainstem. It's, it's you know, the, the, the truth be revealed is really great. But, but then on the other hand, in the 70s, 70% of conservative men believed in science. Okay. And the last study they did on this a few years ago, 35% of conservative men, Republican men, believed in science. Right. And so part of what's happening is it's the, it's, it's, it's the attack on the credibility of, of science. Um, and, and now that's partly green. Yeah. Green, we're the people that brought in deconstruction. We, we, we're the people that brought in everything is contextual. We're the pre, you know, Derrida was really popular with everybody and for a call and everything. But then that whole thing about everything's relative and contextual and so, so on has been corrupted to the point that um, fake news is, is okay if it's my fake news. Totally. Okay. Instead of fake news isn't okay. Yeah. You know, there, I have a moral, you know, the, the, have a moral standard of if, if something is, is, is factually incorrect um, and, and, in, and I look at the data and I still say it's factually incorrect, then I'm lying. And to me, lying is a form of violence and I have a moral standard against violence. You know, you know lies are some of the worst violence that happens. Now, what, do, what doesn't work is my whole thing, line them up and machine gun them. <laughs> what does work is 
If you put a bunch of human beings in a situation like a cigarette company and they only get their $500,000 a year if they can hide data about cigarettes causing cancer or they can hide data about unregulated banks fucking up the economy or you know and so on then a vast amount probably I don't know what 60 70% of people are going to protect their 500,000 a year. And so now if you give those people external regulations you say, you know, you can't rip people off, but you can still make a profit. Say the insurance companies. Mm-hmm. You can make a you can make a five percent profit, clear profit after expenses, five percent, even you know, eight percent, you know, something significant, a huge return. But everything else has to be helping people out. You know, Medicare has like three percent overhead, everything else goes to treatment. If you take the insurance companies in the healthcare industry, I suspect that forty to fifty percent is profit or money that they put into 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 creating boundaries for people to get care. Okay. All right, so you you bring in those regulations and now those people they still making their four or five hundred thousand a year and they're still doing their industry, but they're externally controlled. Yeah. Because and now they turned into virtuous people because they're not allowed to not be virtuous anymore. Okay, and so that's why I get I get critical of myself when I start hating them. Okay, I go no, there needs to be a social shift so that they're protected from the corrupting influences of the institutions that they're part of. Totally, I, I love that. I'm, it, this is kind of a crazy idea, but it's kind of blowing my mind right now. Even in terms of um, this idea of external controls. Yeah. And how important it is to the health of the, of, you know, us as individuals and to the system is, you know, in, in some regards in nature, nature provided that like, even if it was unconsciously, there were certain external controls that just happened. But as we've shifted, like we were talking about bringing more consciousness into, um, the process of evolution, even it's striking me that like the huge problem right now is we're having to learn how to create intentionally these external controls for things that sometimes came from nature itself and the environment before. I mean, it's huge on an individual level, like so much of, you know, what, uh, people in kind of our transformational world space, it's all about like technology and access to food and all these things that are now like the supernatural stimuli that used to have external regulation. Naturally, we're now having to like create these incredibly, complex processes or trying to figure out or do all these workshops or all the self-discipline to figure out just how to bring basic external control back into things that desperately need it. And just hearing you, even in terms of the, the culture at large, it's just really striking me of like what a huge part of evolution itself becoming conscious of itself that is right now is like what external controls are we creating and at what point and at what time? Yes. And, you know, back in the in the hunter-gatherer days, there wasn't enough of everything. Okay? So uh, we evolved in environments where there wasn't enough stuff. There wasn't enough sugar. There wasn't enough fat. There wasn't enough meat. There wasn't enough, you know, th- yeah. you know we really needed to struggle. And, and there's some, there's, there, there was a great, there's a great case made by a Brazilian um, evolutionary biologist. Um, and I forget her, Susan, I forget her last name. That the growth of the human brain about a million and a half half years ago happened because people got fire and started cooking. Yeah. That then they could only concentrate calories enough so that they, we could sustain a brain. Because if we didn't have cooking, we would have to be eating sixteen hours a day to sustain our, if we were foraging. But now in the current society, we have 
every most of the pathologies in America, if you think about it, are pathologies of excess. There's now yeah. there's too much food, there's too much fat, there's too much protein, there's too many drugs. You know, after a good meal, the amount of dopamine in your nucleus acumen shell goes up about four times. You know, ah, that was a nice meal. After a hit of coke, goes up four hundred times. Okay, so. Um, there's at least a dozen candidate genes that are associated with addiction. Okay, so if I have genes for addiction and I'm put in an environment where there's too much of stuff, then I have to have I have to be an outlier when it comes to my capacity for willpower and self-control and self-observation to not become an addict. Okay? You know, I'm the only guy in my family that that drinks. Okay. You mm-hmm. I have alcoholics in my family. Okay, so the rest of my family either are in recovery or they didn't. They don't trust themselves enough to drink. I have, you know, willpower. I have rules yeah. that I follow. You know, I don't have more than two or three glasses of wine. You know, that kind of stuff. A few days a week, right? That kind of stuff. But I have an enormous amount of willpower. Okay, so my point about it is, is that in in this environment with so much. Um, now it's much more complex and there's a lot more pathologies available. And, and you know, we need to have social help in uh, learning how to be virtuous, healthy people. I mean, I remember the most compliments I got from my three-year-old when he went to Montessori school was on his lunches. Huh. His teachers would just go crazy over Ethan's lunches. You know why? They were healthy lunches. Mm-hmm. There was organic food and vegetables, you know, fruits and vegetables, you know, and not too much carbs and stuff. So my kids were raised in an environment where they were acutely aware of healthy and unhealthy eating and food and stuff. And so now at 28 and 31, um, they naturally eat healthy and are put off by unhealthy food and unhealthy sleep and unhealthy lack of exercise and stuff. Why? They were raised in a culture where those were the cultural standards. We were outliers in the, to a large extent. Um, you know, and – if you're going to be a family and you find cultural pathologies, you want to be an outlier in the culture around those cultural pathologies. Um, uh, we were outliers around me. You know, my kids would go out when they were teenagers and, and their mm-hmm. friends would say, don't tell your parents this. And my kids would say, what do you mean? My parents are the smartest people I know. I'm not going to fucking <laughs> not tell my parents. Yeah. And so they got somewhat socially excluded from those groups, but they didn't have the same pathologies that those yeah. groups had. Okay. Because those pathologies in those teenage cultures were driven by the separation they had between adult wisdom and those cultures. It was just a bunch of teenagers raising each other. Well, when teenagers are raising each other, the death rate oh goes Oh, my God, way totally. I... Same true for rhesus monkeys, too, interestingly. Huh. Rhesus monkeys, when male rhesus monkeys reach the age of three, they're adolescents functionally. Okay, so they're, they're driven out of their tribe, and for six, for six months to a year, they live in gangs of, of males out in the wild until they reintegrate into a new tribe, a new pack, or, you know, what, what, yeah. a troop, okay? During that six to 12 months in the wild, those teenage male rhesus monkeys have a 40 to 50% fatality rate. <laughs> okay. Makes you think of, of of groups of of teenage guys out in their cars drinking. Oh, totally. And twenty percent of every sixteen year of all the sixteen year olds in this country, twenty percent of all the sixteen year olds in this country total a car. Okay, just like Reese's monkeys. <laughs> that is crazy. That yeah, that it, it is crazy. It strikes me as so true, though. You know, and even it, it's funny. It reminds me of um, I don't know if you saw the movie Boyhood. 
Oh yeah. But that was a the, great movie. There's this brilliant scene in it that I just like, it was like a, you know, one of those full body, like, yes, that's true moments where it's just this casual scene. They're at a party, uh, at some abandoned house and they're literally just like throwing knives at each other. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> and they're like, and it's not even the point of the scene in, in some regards, but it's just like, that's how, that's just what happens at that age unmonitored, you know, you like these super dangerous situations and they're just being monkeys. <laughs> Just being fucking monkeys. I mean, I look back when I was, you know, if you can get a teenager, and this is teenagers of, of every ethnicity, every socioeconomic level. If you can get them through teenage, through teenagers into their 20s without being part of the, without cooking them into the justice system, yeah, their rate of oppositional behavior goes down. Their rate of social appropriate behavior goes up. If you can just ease them through that period. Wow. And now there are there are um, uh, programs that are designed specifically to teach mindfulness to teenagers, inner city kids in Chicago, to teach them. No, it's not about not fighting. Yeah, it's just about if you have to fight. First of all, do it because you have to. Second of all, look around. How can you do it in a way that won't get you thrown in jail? Okay. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're teaching them to have their mindfulness practices so that they have that moment of reflection, so that they have choice, so that they can play off that choice against their larger goals, which might be to get a job or to go to college or something. Just that moment of that flash, okay? And that's been enough with the groups of teenagers, teenage boys especially, that they're zeroing on the boys. This is, that's enough so that there's a significant decrease in incarceration and in wow. violence among the kids that go through that program. Okay. So how come all teenage boys don't have that program? Yeah. How come that's not part of school? How come we're not teaching kids in school all about sex? How about we're not teaching mindfulness in schools? How about we're not teaching about superior relate, relating, you know, things that really fucking mm-hmm. matter, you know? Um, it's, it's beginning to happen in little bits here and there. Uh, uh, you know, there was a sex therapy program that was just maybe cry it was so beautiful Hmm. that people come and talk to the kids boys and girls separately you know give them a lot of data give them a lot of questions um you know to go home and talk with their parents about brought the parents back and had everybody talk about it with each other and then answered the questions to the families they were essentially teaching the families how to talk about sex yeah okay so that's what's been happening in say um uh, uh the netherlands for the last 60 years, uh, they, they decided to consciously in the late 60s take on a scientifically validated attitude towards sexuality and sex education, where kids were encouraged to have pro-social, healthy sexual experiences. It was a pro-sexual program. Um, I, you know, one of my favorite aspects of that program is that – talk about evolution – is that they found out that after they did it a year or two that girls still thought that sex was for boys. So then they added a whole nother component about how the woman's pleasure is super important in sex. Yeah. All right. Well, 90, over 90% of those kids said their first sexual experience was with somebody they cared about. It was really wonderful. Wow. Only about 40% of Americans say that. Their, their levels of, of uh, uh, premarital um, uh, pregnancy um, is about a 17th of the United States. Their levels of abortion is a seventh of the United States. Um, you, you know, we know how to do things right. Um, yeah. 
we we have we have we have data about how people thrive, how humans thrive, and what I'm hoping for in the next hundred years, in the next five years or ten years, is that gradually the the the, the institutions will be more and more informed, and people will be more and more informed by let's just arrange things so that everybody is you know happy and healthy and productive, and we're taking care of the environment and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Because that's what's best for everybody. That's what that's what makes the healthiest countries and, and that kind of stuff. That's that's the evolutionary imperative on this planet. To have people first do that for people, but yeah. once they do it for people, what do they start doing? Now they're doing it for other 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 creatures, other Absolutely. animals. You know? You know, it's interesting to me that there's some species that are only alive because they're on hunting preserves in Texas. Because these hunting preserves said, okay, they're all extinct in Iran. You know, the Iranian, you know, uh, mountain goat, for instance, yeah. mountain sheep. Well, they're not extinct in the world because they're on they're in these thousand acre hunting ranches in Texas where they are managed so that they'll never go extinct because they're making money for people. Okay, that's healthy orange. That's awesome. Played off against environmental protection. Totally. All right. Well, you know, every time they ever had a regulation that required energy companies to pollute less, it ended up making more money for energy companies and the energy companies and, and having more wealth for people in general. And the energy companies have suppressed that data left and right because they just don't want it out. And every time they get regulated, there's more wealth, there's more jobs and there's less pollution. Um, they keep wanting to pretend that's not the case. That is crazy. Yeah, that that, is I crazy. had no idea the stats were like that significant. Uh, yeah, that it, this is also reminding me. Um, the, these are I, I love hearing you talk about this because these are issues I'm extremely passionate about. And uh, one of the guys I've definitely been following, who I, I actually think in some ways he's an integral cat, but just maybe not conscious of it, is George Lakoff. The, uh, I agree. Don't think of a pink elephant guy because his his big drive right now is relabeling literally even that word regulation as protection. Every time yes. we talk about stripping business of regulations, it's actually well, these are actually protections and just linking into that thing you were even just talking about, like external controls. These are protections for our individual us as individuals and these systems that. They're just protecting us from being overwhelmed by these things that'll just kind of grow and um, out of control otherwise. And he is, I, I, first of all, I really agree that George Lakoff is um, uh, an integral. And I, frankly, I think most of the integral people in the, in the world have never heard of integral. Yeah. I think they just, you know, they're, they're existing at that altitude. Totally. Ken Johnson came up, you know, he knows they came up with the idea of primary metaphors. Okay, primary metaphors are, are are metaphors that everybody understands, um, but but nobody is taught. You know, why do we look up to people and we know everybody knows what that means? Or look down on someone, everybody knows yeah. what that means. The primary metaphors. And so he knows that if you want to change a culture, you need to change the primary metaphors of that culture. Now, Karl Rove and the Republicans did that with taxes. Okay. They created a primary metaphor that taxation was immoral. Okay, mm-hmm. wasn't didn't used to be the case, but it began in the late seventies, and they just sold it, and they sold it, and they sold it, and they sold it, and they sold it, and eventually it made it into the culture, and it became a primary metaphor for higher taxes equals more exploitation of the populace. Lower taxes is better, higher taxes is worse. Okay, 
it became a primary metaphor. Okay, so Lakoff's intuition, which is completely right on, we want to turn the concept of regulation into the concept of protection. Um, you know, we want to turn the context of, of taxes in the context of being a virtuous citizen, you know, contributing to uh, a thriving society. Oh my God, so, dude, I have the perfect example of this. It blown my, blows my mind you just brought that up. I literally just saw you two last night <laughs> here in Pasadena. And, uh, you know, Bono has been very involved in the HIV AIDS Yes. Um, fight for years now and has his organization called one. And he, he was doing some, I think some pretty great spiral work in terms of integral where he was talking about like, Hey, as, as Americans, you guys should be taking pride that he, I think he said something like 16 million people around the world are taking a pill a day and surviving on HIV because of your taxes. And that's not <laughs> something you should feel bad about. That's something you should celebrate and feel pride around, like the virtue in that. It's so crazy. He was just totally tapping into what you were just talking about. You know, I feel pride in Obama. Oh, God, I, yeah. I, you know, I'm proud to be in a country that elected him and kept him in charge for eight years. Yeah. I'm proud of that. You know, he's, he's to me, he's... A, you know, like I think that the Bill Clinton was a personally um, undisciplined integral leader. Yeah. But he was a he was a tremendous leader, a tremendous governor, and I think that Obama was a personally uh, disciplined uh, integral leader. And I think that that was a little peak experience for the world. Totally. I think if America keeps choosing people like that, um, you know, if Hillary was in charge. Everything would be going better. Everybody would be better taken care of. The world would be a safer place. And everybody on the right and left would be bitching about her every day. Oh, my God. Totally. You know, and so, okay. Um, but, 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 but there's just a sense of we, we see that. And everybody, you know, unless you're just complete, um, completely lost in your blue distortion, everybody looks at Obama and they go, yeah, what an admirable guy. Yeah. Well, well what makes him an admirable guy? Stuff like what you just said. Basically, that integral, I'm, I'm trying to, to do the highest good. I'm trying to care for everybody attitude. We all know that that's basically the hallmark of a good man and a good leader. And so, again, hopefully that becomes a primary metaphor, that the, gov the, the leader is associated with someone who's trying to help everybody, okay? which is not what government has been since Republicans froze the government and, and you know, certainly and, and pathologized exactly. the, the progressives. It all became about pathologizing the progressives and freezing the government, and nobody was being taken care of. Um, now, that's obscene from the outside, uh, um, but Hillary Clinton said it 20 years ago. She said that, that Republicans are great at getting power, and they're horrible at governing. <laughs> and, and, and until the Republicans get interested in governing well, um, like they, they have occasionally, you know, with different kind of coalitions and so on, then that's what we're going to see. We're going to see progressives trying to take care of people, and we're going to see the conservatives trying to freeze the process and pathologize the progressives until they get power again. Um, and that's just the way that it's set up right now. That's so and true. the money will be with the conservatives because, you know, that's where the rich stay rich, get richer and the poor get poorer. This has been amazing. This has been amazing. I've really enjoyed this, Keith. Yeah, me too, Jason. Yeah, I feel like we've hit so many topics. Always feel like I leave with more sparkles in my eyes having uh, oh, well, thank time you. and talking with you. It's just like so great. Well, I feel the same way. 
you know, there's something about this kind of intersubjectivity that lights me up. You know, it, it accesses, um, it does access my that violet altitude in me, and it doesn't happen when I'm by myself. Yeah, it only happens with people like you. You know, with a, you know, it's high functioning people. We get it. We have an intersubjectivity, and there's a certain magic that happens, Jason. Absolutely. I mean, that I feel like that ties so perfectly back into even how you started this in terms of evolution itself being relational and actually by having these dialogues, you know, connections are created and that is in its, in itself evolution. Yeah. We're creating more complexity right now. (laughs) Let's keep on doing it, Keith. Keep on doing it. Much love to you. Much love to everybody who's listening to this. Thank you so much. Until next time, my friend. Until next time, my friend. Learn more about Dr. Keith Witt and his work at drkeithwitt.com and check out his latest books, Shadow Light Illuminations at the Edge of Darkness and The Shadow Light Journal, a workbook. Special shout out and thanks to Screaming Witness for the amazing intro and outro song. Check them out.